Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. deeds that he did way out in New Mexico long long ago when a man's only chance was his old 44 Richard I finally got a radio station tuned in and that was Billy the Kid by Marty Robbins from the 1959 album Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs available on Apple Music well, you know, I love me some Marty Robbins. El Paso. Yeah, really? Yeah, I do, actually. El Paso is a great song. My mom and dad used to like some country music, and I remember back in the 70s watching Hee Haw and the Porter Wagner show. I'm not into country now, but I do appreciate some Marty Robbins. Well, that's nice. And gosh, fate just continues to deal us aces because it's a coincidence. We are on the way to the drive-in theater. And what is one of the movies we're going to watch? Well, it might be Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Go figure. Wow. And we can't go to the drive-in without a double feature, at least. What's the other movie? A Shakarama, as it was promoted. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Perfect drive-in movies that will, I'm sure, spawn some interesting conversation. You want to tell us where specifically we're headed? We are headed to Versailles, Indiana. And yes, that is the way it's pronounced. Now, if it is pronounced something else, the internet lied to me and I will blame Google. I kind of wish we were going to Versailles in France. Well, but... that would be interesting, but then all the movies would be in French and, you know, I don't think they'd have subtitles. Do they have drive-ins in France? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe not. We know we had them here in the U.S. We're going to the Bel Air Drive-In. The good, exciting thing is, is that not only was the Bel Air Drive-In open in 1966, it is still open in 2023. Most of these drive-ins are long gone, but this one is still open. It opened actually in 1952 with a capacity of 250 cars. By 1966, the year that we'll be there, the capacity was up to 300. And pretty much as we will see it in 1966 is the way it still looks with maybe a little wear and tear in 2023. The area doesn't look like it's changed very much either. Still kind of a rural area. Versailles, Indiana really hasn't grown that much. It had a population of just over a thousand people in 1966. I mean, it has doubled, but the population is only 2,184. <laughs> it's located on US 421. The area still very rural, not a lot of development around it. It is you know, in the small town drive-in theaters. I mean, it's it's got a small little ticket office, a small concession stand. It's got a lot of grass that people park on. So it's not a big parking lot. It's not a big rocked-in, fancy drive-in. It's just one of those good small town drive-ins, but 
They've got a pretty exciting double feature that we're going to be checking out in 1966. I'm so excited. I'm so glad summer is here and we're headed back to the drive-in. But you know what? I was so distracted by driving and finding a song and traffic. I didn't tell everyone who I am. I was thinking the same thing. Who are we? (laughs) I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. And although we are mobile, we are going to treat this trip as one of our regular monthly episodes, one of our club meetings. So I'm going to call this meeting to order. Old business. Ah, what can I recall? Oh, I did memorize half of the list of people that are new members on our Facebook group page. And I know you memorized the other half. Should we welcome them verbally and and thank them for joining our club on Facebook? Absolutely. It's been another stellar month of new members joining the club. This is pretty exciting. I still wonder... Is the word getting out through our Rondo nomination, or is it just that time of year and people are looking for things to listen to? I don't know, but I'm very thankful. We're getting some good dialogue happening on the Facebook page as well. We've had a few people ask, is this okay to talk about? Can I promote this? Absolutely. Join the conversation, and that's what we want to see. Let's welcome these new members, and I'll start things off with Jeffrey Page. And I've got James Michael Roddy. Rayford Hodges III, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Tom Gerg, who I believe is Tom Gerganus. We know him from being on Monster Kid Radio. Mike Spear. George Hayton. William Pinzon. Ansel Farage, independent filmmaker. If you're listening, loved Todd Tarantula. Joe Bello. Eric Miller. Danielle Nolan. Michael Scadurlo and David Quigley. Welcome again, everybody. We are happy to have you. I know I've got the radio turned down, but uh, I'm going to turn up my phone now so we can hear a voicemail from Steve Sullivan. Let's hear what he had to say about our last episode, The Notorious Mr. B.I.G. Hi, guys. This is Steve Sullivan. Just calling because you're doing a show on Mr. Big, who sadly left us at age 100. I'm happy that I got to meet him at uh, one of the monster bashes I was at and get his autograph. Didn't talk much. I mean, he was like pretty close to 100 then. So, uh, but it was great seeing him and his enthusiasm for his fans and uh, his work. I love his work. Uh, it's you know I know it's not top flight, but it entertains me immensely. I'm I'm super fond of a lot of his films. Uh, the beginning and the end with the giant grasshoppers. I just love that film to death. Uh, The Amazing Colossal Man, it would be really nice if that would come out on actual modern media. Earth vs. the Spider is fabulous. Uh, Tormented, scared the dickens out of me when I was a little kid in the hospital. I was about eight or nine years old, uh, and that was on, and I I loved it to pieces, and it scared the devil out of me. I even like his fantasy film, The Magic Sword, a lot, and it's a a great inspiration for D&D games. So I am sorry he's gone. I'm really glad... We have his films. I've even enjoyed things like Food of the Gods, which was a date movie for me, and uh, Empire of the Ants. Uh, and you can see echoes of, of that stuff, obviously, in Atomic Tales. So uh, thanks, Mr. Big. We miss you. We're glad you were here. Take care, guys. We'll talk to you soon. So great to hear from Steve. He participates on the page and on some of the posts that I've done certainly over the last couple of months as I've been working through like the William Castle films and then some more 
Bert I. Gordon films. He's been commenting on them. Nice to hear his voice and to hear his comments. Steve, I also appreciate all your participation and comments on my ClassicHorrors.club posts. He was able to leave that voicemail by calling our hotline, if you will. The phone number is 616-649-2582, or as Richard would like to say, 616-649-CLUB. I would like to remind people that we have a video companion on our YouTube channel. You can find that at Classic Horrors TV, and this will be a particularly good episode of The Companion to watch because you will actually see some pictures of the Bel Air Drive-In and our lovely faces. Okay, old business out of the way. Rich, you mentioned these movies were made at the same time, 1966. Why don't you set the stage? What else was going on in 1966? If we did not go to the drive-in and did not want to see these movies, what are our entertainment options? As always, we could listen to the radio. Back in the day, people would listen to the radio and, and listen to the tunes. Casey Kasem wasn't quite a thing yet. He didn't come along until the early 70s, but the Billboard charts were still around. Why don't we take a look at the top 10 songs for the week of April 9th, 1966, which is the day before these movies officially were released, which was April 10th. Before we dive into the top 10, just a couple of uh, interesting things that weren't in the top 10 yet. New to the Hot 100 was the song Monday, Monday by the Mamas and the Papas. It debuted at number 79, which you wouldn't think that was a very auspicious debut on the charts. Eventually, though, and rather quickly, it would be the number one song in the land. So that's an incredibly quick rise, and it'd be there for an eventual three weeks. Also new to the top 40, debuting at number 35, was the song Sloop John B. by the Beach Boys. It would eventually hit number three on the charts. Number 10, California Dreamin'. By the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, it had peaked at number four. It was on its way down. So the follow-up song, Monday, Monday, was coming up uh, hot on its heels. Number nine, Sure Gonna Miss Her by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Hmm. Number eight, I'm So Lonesome, I Could Cry by <laughs> B.J. Thomas and the Triumphs. I think the country version of this is probably more well-known than the B.J. Thomas version. Number seven, Secret Agent Man. Number six, it wouldn't be a top 10 in the 60s without a tune from the Beatles, Nowhere Man. Now time for something completely different. Number five, The Ballad of the Green Berets by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. <laughs> what? <laughs> Have you ever heard this song? Uh, not that I know of. Number four, Bang Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down by Cher. Oh, remember uh, that. That's yes. going to come into play later. Oh. Number three, 19th Nervous Breakdown by the Rolling Stones. Number two, Daydream by the Lovin' Spoonful. <laughs> what a beautiful day for a daydream. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yes. My melodious voice. Mm -hmm. And number one, for the first of an eventual three weeks at number one, you're My Soul and Inspiration by the Righteous Brothers. Hmm. If you wanted to go to the movies, the top box office for April 13th, number one was Dr. Zhivago. Hmm. Uh, this was the second of an eventual 12 weeks that the movie was at number one, one of the biggest movies of the era. 
Other big movies of 1966 included Thunderball, James Bond 007, original James Bond, Mr. Sean Connery. The Sound of Music, the movie just kept on going. It was number one and kept coming back and being re-released. Sound of Music, very popular. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And to capture the 007 spy craze that was going on at the time, we had The Silencers with Dean Martin, part of his series of four films where he played Matt Helm, and then Our Man Flint. Other horror movies of 1966 included Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Island of Terror, Manus, The Hands of Fate, Picture Mommy Dead, Queen of Blood, and The Undertaker and His Pals, just to name a few. And if we wanted to stay home instead on Sunday, April 10th, was the FBI. Over at CBS, there was Lassie, My Favorite Martian, What's My Line, and Perry Mason. Hmm. And over at NBC, we had the Bell Telephone Hour, which was an anthology series. Of course, it was Sunday night, so we had the wonderful world of Disney playing Concho, the coyote who wasn't, which was one of those nature ones with the animals that I was always disappointed. You know, when you're watching, I was like, I wanted cartoons or I wanted Davy Crockett. And then, oh, it's, it's an animal one. I never liked those back in the day. And then we had a couple of great Westerns, Branded, one of my all-time favorite Westerns with Chuck Connors, Bonanza, and The Wackiest Ship in the Army. That's what was playing on TV on Sunday night, April 10th, if you didn't want to go to the movies. Richard, you mentioned Dr. Zhivago, and that reminds me of my father. That was one of his favorite movies. And that reminds me, I didn't give a shout out to my brother and my mom, who I know are listening, but they have yet to leave any feedback. Anyway. Jay and mom, hello. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the show. I'll give a shout out to my mom, who certainly doesn't even understand technology, but Dr. Shivago is actually one of her favorite movies. She loved that. Whenever it would pop up on, I'm pretty sure it was ABC would play it back in the day. And I think they had to separate it over two nights because it was so long. I remember her always wanting to watch that. She loved the music in it. I can see the driving in the distance anything else to cover before we pull in no i think we've talked about the theater we've talked about 1966 i will pull in and we've got enough time i'm going to run in and get uh, something from the snack bar well why don't you come with me this time and check it out and then we'll come back and watch the first movie i can share with you some of the popular candy of the day oh yeah brand new i don't know if they'll have it but it was the $100,000 bar made its debut in 1966. It's now known simply as the 100 grand bar. I love that candy bar. Razzles were very popular. Chuckles, Dots, and Sweet Tarts were some of the most popular. You can still get a Hershey's bar for five cents, but it did shrink in 1966. They kept the price the same, but they made it a little bit smaller. And uh, I don't know that they'll be selling a six-pack of Pepsi, but you could buy an entire six-pack for 59 cents. Wow. You gotta love 1966 prices. So I'm pretty sure with our 2023 money, we can come back with enough to make us sick. Yeah, that all sounds good. But you know what I've got a hankering for is a barbecue beef sandwich. I wonder if they're going to have one of those. That and a steaming cup of hot coffee just (laughs) makes it sound like an enjoyable evening. Well, we're not going to need coffee to stay awake because these two movies are so exciting. We're going to need a pot of coffee, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, well, we'll be back in just a minute. Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Did you fail to dress up for tonight's show? No tie, an old shirt and slacks, a house dress? <laughs> well, don't give it a thought. We're glad you came as you are. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. Don't forget to visit our refreshment center during the intermission or any time. You love the tasty array of snacks we have to offer. So will the youngsters. Everything is quality and mm, so good. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. There are always wonderful new pictures to see, delightful snacks to nibble, a gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Don't drive over 10 miles an hour in the theater area for your safety's sake. And mom or pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. Show starts in two minutes. Uh, may I help you? Uh, I'd like two of those, please. Hot dogs? Yes, sir. And three of those. And one of those. And five bars of these. And a cup of that nice hot liquid. Uh, coffee. Uh, coming right up. Oh, and two bags of those peculiar white puffy material. Uh, you mean our crunchy popcorn. Uh, uh, shall I wrap that for you, sir? Oh, that's all right. My saucer's just outside. <laughs> they come from miles to enjoy our intermission. When travel by stage was dangerous because of vengeful renegade Indians, a massive, mysterious bat terrorized the pioneers of the West. When the vampire takes a mate, he turns the one he chooses into one of the living dead like himself. There's something spooky about all this. Something I don't understand, but I'm going to find out. Don't be afraid, my child. I chose you for my mate. Tomorrow you'll become one of the undead, as I am. Your bullets can't hurt me. We have just watched Billy the Kid versus Dracula. And before we start talking about it, why don't you provide a totally impromptu synopsis of the film? Obviously, it is a Western. Well, you know, married couple waking up on the range. They're worried about their daughter. A bat comes swooping down out of the sky, Count Dracula. Although Dracula's name is never mentioned in the movie, but it is Dracula. At least that's what the poster tells us and the title cards tell us. Dracula is now in the Old West. One person can save the day, and that'd be an outlaw by the name of Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid versus Dracula was written by Carl Hittleman, directed by William Bodine. It stars John Carradine, Chuck Courtney, Melinda Casey, Virginia, Christine. Runs 74 minutes, produced by Circle Productions Incorporated. 
Richard, the first thing I want to say is, even though it's in the title, I prefer to think this is not Dracula. John Carradine and his performance, even though he's appeared as Dracula before, Sully's the good name of the Count. Why is Dracula in the Old West? He's dressed dapper, for sure, but other vampires could do that. Especially when you're looking at John Carradine, I was like, well, he's played Dracula before in the 1940s in House of Dracula and House of uh, Frankenstein. He plays it differently, somewhat. Yeah, there's really no reason to consider him to be Dracula, especially since he's never identified as Dracula. But I mean, if you say, you know, Billy the Kid versus James Underhill, <laughs> don't think that's going to put butts in the seat. So Yeah, it, it could be Billy the Kid versus the vampire, but the then that wouldn't pair as nicely with Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Exactly. So I think that may very well have played a part in why why Walter Bodine went ahead and, and, you know, threw that in there. It's like, well, let's put Dracula's name on there. That'll draw people like, it's Dracula. It's a Dracula film. And John Carradine, who had played Dracula some 20 years before, surely some people still remember that he had done Dracula. Could this be a sequel to House of Dracula? Could this be a long lost universal film? No, no, no. What did you think of it overall? The first time I saw it, after being aware of it for many, many years, was on Spenguli. A few years back, the film has come out recently, I think even on Blu-ray. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's not a horrible film. It's not a great film. It's got some flaws. But to me, it comes across as being something you'd kill some time watching on a rainy Saturday afternoon or maybe the second feature of a double feature on a Saturday night. You know, the creature feature double feature starts off with a great film. And then for those of you who are still awake at 1230, here's the second feature. And that if you fall asleep during, you know, you're not going to be kicking yourself because you saw Boris Karloff in Bride of Frankenstein at 1030. You saw the big guns. And then this is the lesser entry. I don't think you have to necessarily put it high on your list to watch. I don't think you necessarily have to kick yourself if you never see it. I don't want to say it's forgettable. I think you'll remember pieces of it for sure. But once you're done with it, you're willing to move on. For me, I always judge films these days as this something that I, I feel like I need to add to my collection or am I okay having a digital copy of it? And I'm okay having a digital copy of it. I don't necessarily need to seek out a Blu-ray edition of it to add to my collection. I say this though, and I'm going to be purchasing Robot Monster later this summer to add to my collection. Take that for whatever it's worth. It's all subjective. The print that is out there now is better than what had been circulating for quite a while, which is kind of like a poor VHS copy. At least you can enjoy the film if you get the right copy of it. Something pleasurable to see. It's, it's got some bright colors. It's got some fun performances along the way that I think kind of enhance it. I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. What about you? I first saw it in 2019 and didn't think very fondly of it. However, I much, well, I shouldn't say much. I enjoyed it more the the second time. And I think it's because I didn't take it as seriously. I wouldn't say it's intended to be a comedy, but I think if you sort of take it in as a comedy, I think it works better. It has some very funny moments. I enjoyed it. That's the key thing. Don't take it seriously. 
Don't go into it thinking, well, I have just seen all of the Universal films. I have seen all of the Hammer films. And so now I'm going to enter into the Walter Bodine <laughs> library. No, I mean, don't do that. Because if you go in with just lower expectations and say, you know what? I think you'll end up enjoying it a lot more. There are some cool, oh gosh, I, I hesitate on every nice thing I say about it, but <laughs> I'll say special effects. I really like the bat. Every time it appears, it swoops down or it actually like dives. And that looks pretty cool. And sometimes when then John Carradine appears after that, it's kind of cool. Like the bat dives behind a stagecoach and then John Carradine walks around the side of it. Okay, so I'm going to stop you there real quick. Stagecoach scene. Did you catch the goof? No. Okay. I only caught this because Sven pointed it out when it was on several years ago. When you're looking at the stagecoach, right, as the bat comes down and then you see John Carradine's face appear through the window and then he comes around. When you're looking through that window, one of the technicians is actually visible through the window of the stagecoach. I didn't even notice John Carradine through the window. I almost think that was too, because it would have been more effective if you just see him coming around the wagon. So I don't think we were supposed to see him, but even if we were, we definitely were supposed to see the prop guy. Before we get too far, I want to make a couple comments about both of them. Just watching this, had I not known the year, I never would have guessed it was from 1966. It seems much older than that. Conversely, I wonder if they were actually made in black and white, if it'd be more effective. So that kind of made me think, I don't even know why these were made, really. In a way, these are more Westerns than they are horror films. Westerns in movies, those were big in the 50s, right? I know there was a lot of TV Westerns in the 60s. If you think of the time period, 66, we we were right on the cusp of two changes happening in film, in Westerns and in horror films. We're just a couple of years ahead of Night of the Living Dead, right? So if you watch some other horror films from the mid-60s, they look dated because their color but they're made in a style that we're more familiar seeing as a black and white film. And I think that's where it's kind of a bit jarring. Westerns also were on the verge of changing right around that time period where Clint Eastwood starts doing the Man With No Name trilogy. So it had a a look of an old 1950s Western, but it was happening right at the time that Westerns themselves were were changing and, and becoming more adult more graphic, entirely different than what you'd expect in the 40s and 50s. A little dated in style, but not necessarily by itself, because there's other films from this time period, which also appear to be a little more dated than others. I think that might explain why these films look a bit more old-fashioned. I think of another horror Western from just a few years earlier, Curse of the Undead, also about a vampire to me, it seems more effective because it takes more advantage of that Western setting and incorporates the, the vampire better. He's like a native of the area, sort of, or at least feels like it. And this, I just can't get... <laughs> I, I've said it before, I'll probably say it again. Why in the heck was Dracula here in the Old West? <laughs> well, I think that with Curse of the Undead, just looks better. I'm sure it probably had a bigger budget. Uh, even though it was at the tail end of the universal horror 
So it probably had a fraction of the budget so that some other films did before it. The film was shot in eight days. So, well, you know, what do you get when you have a film shot in eight days? Well, if you have some actors of higher caliber, you can at least elevate the film with the acting. John Carradine, never an A-list actor. He can be entertaining. He's the best of the lot, really, when you look at this. And you, I mean, obviously, the rest of the cast, they did other stuff, too. And some are better than others, but we're not necessarily dealing with A-list cast. Did kind of feel like, hey, let's go make a Western. Simply because they had a few sets and and some horses and stuff. They were kind of just rushing things through and taking what they could get. You say that he's the only A-list. I think in terms of other films, yes, he's the most well-known. However, he is not, in my mind, the best actor in this film hats off to the woman that played the doctor olive carey uh playing dr henrietta hole is by far the star of this show and yeah i think that's what raised the movie uh this time was kind of focusing on her and her attitude and her performance very very entertaining i I agree wholeheartedly yeah i was i had the same note one of the best lines in the movie is where she she gives a shot of whiskey to billy the kid and she's a here here, this will make you feel better i think i'll have a shot and join you i'm not feeling so good myself yep yep the great i'm glad that in the library of of medical people at this time that they have volumes about european legends because otherwise they would not know, you know, how to deal with this vampire threat. Now, I think it's a little lost in translation because I don't know how a scalpel compares to a wooden stake. Supposedly, if you hammer a scalpel, which they call, uh, what do they call it? A steel rod or something, but it's a little scalpel with a rock, you know, that will apparently dispatch a vampire. Although when the vampire is dispatched, a bat flies up and out, but the body remains. I know. So I'm not really sure what's happening no. there. The bat does like quiver in the sky for a moment before this, yeah. the, the body turns to dust. That was kind of interesting. But, you know, vampire films, they all have their own lore. There's probably... Yes. How can Dracula walk around in daytime? You know, he yes. doesn't seem to have a problem. Well, some of the shots obviously our daytime other shots i think are supposed to be nighttime but they look like they're shot in daytime it's the day for night kind of thing you got to take vampire lore with a grain of salt because it changes for every film yeah and i don't have a problem with him walking around the daylight i have a problem with the way the movie tries to say that he's not and i do think there are obviously scenes that are are meant to be in the daytime first of all one of the things he says is he offers his room to somebody else since I won't be sleeping tonight. And then later on, he tells Betty that he's tired and he might sleep all day. So those lines indicate that he's the typical vampire, but his actions contradict that. Yeah. Tell me, you are much more the Western guy than I am. How does this movie compare to Westerns? And it's unfortunately got some of the typical things that were common in old westerns with the Indians and the fire water and it does it, it does have some stuff you know but, with, and even like when Billy the kid is racing to get from one place to another and there's the 
melodramatic music. It almost even seems like a, a serial or a really old Western. Same as with horror films. You have your A films and your B films. And Westerns changed over a period of time. I often think that silent Westerns, for example, have a much more authentic look to them. And oftentimes they're using sets that were (laughs) real life locations, what have you. Well, the time you get to the 1930s, the style of Westerns, you know, started to change a little bit. The lines of here's the good guy and he's wearing white and here's the bad guy and he's wearing black. And there was a style to those films, early John Wayne films or the Hopalong casting. But when you started getting some of the grander Westerns that started actually having a little more character development and such, those are the ones that stand the test of time. And those are the ones that are much more mainstream. But there's a ton of Westerns that were cranked out in the 40s. And that was we get on into the 50s. And there was a, a very formulaic script. The good guy, the bad guy, the girl. You had a sheriff, some scenes in the bar. A doctor inevitably at some point was thrown in. Although I don't think I ever saw a doctor anywhere near as amusing as, as Dr. Henrietta Hull. Yes, you have Native Americans, harsh by today's standards. And so as you watch those films, you just got to know it's, it's the cowboys and Indians, that old school personification. It's white guys playing the Indians. And when they speak, they speak a certain way. So the other, you got a few scenes in this movie that definitely delve into that very much what you would see in, a, in an average 1950s Western. This, this film, both films actually will really have that look of a 1950s Western B grade or low budget Western, which in itself was becoming outdated. These films very much so are representative of a, of a older style of, of Westerns. And they're much more Western than, than horror, the horror element, especially as we dive into the second film. And that film is even more so more Western than horror. This one, it's integrated better. I and mean, the two elements are constant. And the other one, it kind of switches back and forth. Yeah, they're much more equal, I think, in this film. A good blend of the two genres. What do you know about Billy the Kid? Do you think this was an authentic performance? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know much about Billy the Kid, but I would say probably not very authentic. But I will say that I liked Chuck Courtney's portrayal. While it might not be historically accurate, Chuck Courtney is a better actor than the actor we get as Jesse James. I felt like Chuck Courtney could at least act his way out of a paper sack. He might have to struggle a little bit. I'm not sure the actor who played Jesse James could, uh, if if need be. He's got some horror creds, and actually he's got some Star Trek cred. He played in a movie called Teenage Monster in 57. He did lots of TV. He was actually in a movie we covered last month. He was in The Food of the Gods. He played Hmm. the character of Davis. He was also in Pet Cemetery, and he was a character called, I think it was pronounced David, actually spelled Davod. I don't think it was David. In Star Trek season two episode, Patterns of Force, the Nazi episode. Hmm. Yeah, I never met Billy the Kid, but this is not at all what I thought Billy the Kid would be like. I couldn't find a good picture of him, but the one I did find, he's very ragged, overdressed, 
torn hat. Most representations of the known bad guys are really end up being nothing. Yeah, they make them the heroes. They make them the heroes or they, or they polish it up. This is what Hollywood was giving us of Billy the Kid. Even so, I don't think his personality matched someone that would take on Dracula. And I guess, to be fair, he almost didn't. He gets tossed around quite a bit before he dispatches of, of Dracula. I didn't like him. Sorry. They're using him for name recognition, essentially. Yeah. About it. He's as much Billy the Kid as John Carradine is Dracula. I mean, neither one. Yeah, yeah if you just take Joe Average, Cowboy... That would be the title. Joe Average versus the Vampire. There you go. We wouldn't be talking about that movie right now. But Billy the Kid versus Dracula, butts and seats. What else do you got about the cast? I've got some interesting stuff. Carl Hittleman, the writer, he produced lots of Westerns. He's got 19 writing credits, five directing credits, but he was definitely the Western guy, which is why he was brought in to write these movies. And the director, William Bodine, who I think I might have said Walter earlier, and I apologize for that, William Bodine, 402 directing credits. So incredibly prolific, 27 writing credits, 56 second unit or assistant director credits. He's got an interesting life. The story of of Bodine is infinitely better, I think, than the movie. (laughs) He was born in 1892. He started working in films as a prop boy and an on-screen extra in 1909. One of his very first films was actually working with D.W. Griffith and uh, Max Sennett. He worked with uh, D.W. Griffith on Birth of a Nation in 1915 and Intolerance in 1916. I believe his first directing film was a 1915 film called Diana of the Farm. He became known as, as one-shot Bodine for his style of shooting, only which that which was necessary. He rarely did alternate shots or, or reshoots. It's kind of like, we're going to shoot it, and this is what it's going to be. And that earned him a lot of respect in the silent era and the early talkies, because very cost-effective. Put him in charge of this film, we'll get under budget. He made a lot of money in the silent era, and then lost most of his fortune in the crash of 1929. He left the U.S. uh, in 1935. He made movies in England. And by the time he returned, he had been forgotten. Hollywood had moved on, and he couldn't find any work. So he started directing Poverty Row Flicks, and as the years progressed, he did films like The Living Ghost, The uh, Ape Man with uh, Lugosi, Ghosts on the Loose, Voodoo Man. He was doing some Charlie Chan flicks, some Bowery Boys movies. In 52, he did Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, infinitely bad film. But in 1945, this was his lowest point as a filmmaker. He did a movie called Mom and Dad. This was actually an exploitation film disguised as a hygiene documentary. It was about a pregnant high school girl And when her boyfriend dies, her school's health counselor shows her a film about what she can look forward to, childbirth. It covered the possibility of sexually transmitted diseases. Apparently, some theaters would get the prints that actually showed the childbirth. Movie theaters wouldn't show that. So it became scandalous for 
some of the skeezier theaters out there playing this and the, back in the day. But ultimately, it made a ton of money. It made in excess of $100 million. Oh, my gosh. And it continued to be played at drive-ins as late as 1977. And it's actually now in the Library of Congress National Film Registry because of its historical recognition for being one of the earliest exploitation films. Interestingly enough, just two years after he did that film, he made the first of an eventual 10 films for the Protestant Film Commission. They wanted him to do a series of films that were designed to convert non-believers to Christianity. So he makes this scandalous flick about pregnancy and sex diseases. And two years later, he's working with the Protestants. Only in Hollywood. Interestingly enough, too, he was an atheist. He didn't even believe in God. So he did the work strictly for the money. Ended up doing some TV work. He did The Green Hornet, which has given him a film credit, actually, as late as 1976, called Fury of the Dragon. It was a theatrical edit of Green Hornet episodes that capitalized on Bruce Lee and his portrayal of Cato on the Green Hornet series and basically build it as Bruce Lee in Fury of the Dragon. He continued to be the, the oldest active director in Hollywood at the time these films were made. Uh, he was 74 years of age. He retired in 1968 and died in 1970 at the age of 78 of uremic or uremic poisoning. It's like a kidney disease. Very interesting guy indeed. The cast, too, is it, it's interesting. We mentioned Olive Carey, who played Dr. Henrietta Hall. She started her film career in 1912. She made lots of Westerns on TV. This was actually her last film. Uh, she was 70 years of age, which I think she kind of looked a little older than 70, but I don't know. She retired and uh, ended up dying at the age of 92 in 1988. We've talked about John Carradine, who plays... James Underhill, Count Dracula in title card only. We'll talk about John Carradine at some point. We always say we're going to do an episode and we have to. 352 credits from 1930 until his death in 1988. And he had two films that were uh, released posthumously. Uh, one as late as 1995. We talked about Chuck Courtney, who played Billy the Kid. Melinda Plowman, who I believe here was billed as Melinda Casey, played Betty Bentley. She had 59 credits, a lot of TV stuff. Genre stuff, she appeared in science fiction theaters, a lot of people did, and also an episode of The Outer Limits. Virginia Christine, we got to talk about her. She played... Wait, let me go get another cup of coffee, just a minute. <laughs> she played Eva Oster, better known as Mrs. Olsen in the Folger commercials. I looked at her credits, though, and, you know, I remember her as, as, as Mrs. Olsen. But I and we've not... talked about her before. I can't remember what movie, but I remember talking about her. Yeah, well, she played Princess Ananka in The Mummy's Curse in 1944. She was also in House of Horrors, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, did lots of TV stuff. She was in science fiction theater, The Invaders, The Twilight Zone. She's actually got some legit horror cred to her, which is interesting. Uh, her husband, Franz played by Walter Janowitz, 36 credits, lots of TV stuff. He was in The Incredible Hulk and a movie we may never cover on this show, but 
this may be the first mention of it, probably going to be the last. Jekyll and Hyde together again. Bing Russell played Dan Thorpe. And he was in lots of stuff. Tarantula, Deadly Mantis, The Land Unknown. He was also in The Magnificent Seven, one of the biggest Westerns of all time. And in a movie we've talked about on this show, Satan's School for Girls. Uh, Lots of TV work, Twilight Zone. He also played the deputy on Bonanza. He was in 59 episodes. The only other stuff I've got a little bit is about the location. This was shot at the Corganville Movie Ranch, which I think we might have talked about before. The Corganville Movie Ranch was owned by stuntman Ray Crash Corgan. It was built in 1937. It was used as location and background shots in a ton of films and TV shows. It was a tourist attraction on weekends from 1949 to 65. Bob Hope bought it in 65. He built a subdivision on part of it. It was partially destroyed by wildfires in 1970 and then again in 1979. In 1988, it became a public park called Corganville Park, and the area uh, was used actually in 2018 for Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There are some credits uh, that indicate that the Corganville Ranch was actually used for Star Trek, specifically an episode from the second season called The Private Little War. But there has been some research done in recent years where people have finally been able to pinpoint some of the location shots. Uh, a lot of rocks and stuff that are still there, very unique rocks. And it looks to have actually been shot on Bell Ranch, which was adjacent to the Corganville Ranch. When John Carradine's ears kind of perked up when he heard that there was a cave, I kind of thought we were going to see Bronson Cave, but I don't believe it was. No, I thought the same thing, too. Also, a little bit about going back to Carl Hittleman. Supposedly, Carl Hittleman may not have been involved in writing this film as much. Reportedly, Jack Lewis wrote the script, but didn't want his name on it and ended up selling it to Carl Hittleman for $250. Jack Lewis only had 12 credits from 1950 to 1965. So I don't know why he would have been embarrassed. I I don't even know who really Jack Lewis really is. I mean, the biggest thing that he's known for now is The Amazing Transparent Man in 1960, which not bad, but not great. And so it's kind of funny that he drew the line. By gosh, I don't want my name on Billy the Kid versus Dracula. But the amazing transparent man, I'll, I'll take credit for it. Two more quick little things. John Carradine considered this his worst film, according to several sources. I'm curious at what point he considered it his worst film. <laughs> <laughs> Did he consider it his worst film in 1966? Okay, I'll buy that. I'm fairly certain... He hit a lot of other low points in the years that followed. It's not his worst film. Also, the wolf's bane <laughs> that is seen, I knew right away. I was like, that can't be authentic. I knew that it was a prop. So I did a quick search. No, it looks nothing like the real wolf's bane. It looks like plastic roses almost. And then he looks up and get a close-up shot. And it's like, this is like little apples hanging on. Is this? It's not what wolf's bane looks like. Wolf's bane is actually more of a purple flower in case anyone's wondering that is is what i had on billy the kid versus dracula i got one little thing to add the music by raul kushar gentleman that composed music for 130 movies and he uses some theremin in this film which is eh, semi-effective he wrote the music for invaders from mars which is a terrific score and really contributes to my enjoyment of that film this movie is is easily found. 
You can watch it on Plex. You can watch it on Tubi. I think Tubi might not have the widescreen print. Yeah, if there's a good print of this somewhere, I want to know where it is. Tubi. Well, go to, we've talked about this service before. If you can, uh, go to Canopy. Get signed up through your local library. If they participate, you can get 10 free movies a month. The version that they have is the Studio Canal version. The Studio Canal has the little logo at the beginning. And that's, I think, the best way to see it. I know it's for rent on Amazon. I don't know the quality there. You can also rent it on Apple and YouTube. The Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, I would suspect, is probably comparable to what Canopy has, I would I would think. Anything that's on YouTube are pretty poor quality. I wasn't able to find a good quality on YouTube. So seek it out. You can find some good copies of this out there. When I watched this on Tubi, the commercials were actually welcomed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, and, you know, we've talked about that before. They're not frequent. However, they go from, I swear, the first set was six commercials and the next set was one. They don't very evenly space them out. But little breaks from the tedium were very helpful. I would say, check this out. If you so desire, it doesn't need to be high in your to watch list. It's not going to be the worst movie you're going to see. You might get a level of enjoyment out of it. And I think there are things to be enjoyed about it. And if you're in the right frame of mind and have an hour and 15 minutes to spare, it's pretty harmless. Well, Richard, that first tall, cold drink is washing through me and I've got to go release it. But you know what? I'm going to grab another one on the way back. Are you going to stay here or you want to go? I think I'm going to go with you. I've got a hankering for some of those hot dogs. They were looking pretty tasty. It's refreshment time, folks. Time out for a delicious snack in our sparkling refreshment building. Every item a fresh, appetizing taste treat. We've a large assortment of freshly made sandwiches. How about a pizza? None better anywhere. Sizzling hamburgers grilled to your taste. Mouth-watering chili dillies. Dog days, hot dog days that is, somehow have a way of turning out to be fun days. The pop and sizzle of the juicy meat seems to say, come and get me, I'm done to a turn. Yep, hungry or not, it's hard to resist the tantalizing aroma and taste appeal of a sizzling hot dog. The nice part of it is, there's one waiting for you right now at the refreshment stand. Show starts in one minute. monster stalks the West's most fearless outlaw. Save 
your strength, Jesse James. You will need it. Richard, we did it. We watched Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. It's a little confusing. Jesse James, Frankenstein, Dracula, Billy the Kid. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Tell us, in general, what was it about? The movie starts off with a couple that are eating dinner in their home. There's people leaving the town. They're worried about their daughter. It's kind of the classic case of the villagers are upset because Frankenstein is up at the house in the hill doing his usual experiments and causing madness and mayhem. We see a scientist reviving a dead man and... He collapses, she gets upset, vows to find a bigger, stronger man for her her experiments, relative of Frankenstein, coming (laughs) from the Old West, and you've got an outlaw. That's not Billy the Kid this time. We've got Jesse James, and only Jesse James can save the day. That synopsis sounds an awful lot like Billy the Kid versus Dracula. And I think in its bones, it is. And it sort of has the same structure. But this one takes a lot more twists and turns and is, I think, different enough. I didn't feel like I was watching the same movie twice. Did you? No, I think despite the fact that they're both written by Carl Hittleman and both directed by William Bodine, they're different enough. You've got the similarities in that you've got an Old West villain and you've got, in this one, at least we get a monster and we get a Dr. Frankenstein, unlike the first film where we really, did we get Dracula? We, you know, probably not. We got a vampire. This one, there is at least some legitimate Frankenstein cred and actually some very legitimate Frankenstein cred. We'll be talking about that lab equipment here in a little bit. There's a lineage on that lab equipment. Right off the bat, you're thinking, well, gosh, this this must be a better film because it's got a monster and it's got Dr. Frankenstein in it. I'm just going to come out of the gate and say, I don't think that it's a better film, actually. I don't know that it's necessarily significantly worse, in my opinion. I struggled with with some things in this movie and and specifically the actor who played Jesse James, John Lupton. I did not think he was a great actor. He was... He wasn't a bad actor, in my opinion. He just was very stale, very bland. He didn't really shine in any of the moments, really. You know, it wasn't like he was stumbling over his lines, but he just was so vanilla in his presentation. I wanted to get a cattle prod. It's like, dude, liven up just a little bit. He just seemed to me to be almost phoning in the performance. Well, Richard, are you ready for my bombshell? You loved it. (laughs) I liked this movie a lot, and it, to me, was significantly better than Billy the Kid versus Dracula. And I liked the actor better than the actor in Billy the Kid. I know, again, I have not met Jesse James, but I did look his picture up. I know it has nothing to do with the movie. We've talked about that, but that guy looks a lot like Jesse James. I would say... From a visual, yes. he, he And he does not, this picture does not look like there's much charisma with that guy. Now, I'm not saying that the Jesse James is authentic in this movie. I'm just saying I it did not bother me. His artificiality, his lack of energy, to me, fit a character better than the enthusiastic, dewy-eyed, 
Billy the Kid in the other movie. Like I'll concede, yes. I <laughs> you don't have to concede. You don't have to, you know. No, I will say you're probably correct in that assumption. You mentioned in the first one how Billy the Kid was sort of a reformed villain. And in this one, they sort of embrace the fact that he's a bad guy. I mean, he's on the run. The sheriff is after him. The sheriff, by the way, or the marshal, excuse me, not the sheriff. You know him, Jim Davis, Jock Ewing. Yeah, I got to tell you, I've seen Jim Davis in, in other things. He was Jock Ewing in real life. I'm not sure that I've ever seen him in anything where he just didn't seem like Jock. And there was some scenes in this one where he's talking to the guy that was kind of turning on Jesse James and is setting him up. Some lines where he was talking. and I heard the word Bobby and JR. His mannerisms and his, you know, I was like, yes, that's that's Jock. That elevated the movie for me every time he was on screen. Don't let the fact that I liked this movie hide the fact that it, it's got issues, <laughs> big issues. Yeah. And it starts out, I was, I did not have high hopes. The couple that is talking have very thick Mexican accents. I literally could not understand the husband. And in fact, for a moment, I, I think they were the first words spoken. I kind of wondered if I had a foreign <laughs> version of it. <laughs> And the same thing. I thought, wait a minute. So then we switch to Maria and Rudolph Frankenstein and they have thick German accents. Yeah. And I thought, ooh, this isn't getting any better. I don't know. I either acclimated or it became less distracting, but that was not a, a good start. This explains why Frankenstein has come to, I don't know if it's Kansas or Missouri, but they did mention I think towns that were familiar to me, and we know that Jesse James, that's where he ran around, was in Missouri. There aren't as many storms in Vienna, and you know you've got to have good storms to get that lightning to get your your bodies reanimated. So, you know, that's a very good reason. Plus, they feel like they're safer there. Their reputation isn't known, and they can continue their experiments. So I, I thought, okay, there's a legitimate reason why they're there. That's something I never could get over with Dracula. That's a good point. There is some authenticity thrown into this film with the Spanish and with the German accents that are thrown in. I hadn't thought of that. That's an authenticity that was not present in the other film. There's problems with that, though, and you mentioned it at the beginning that they're running out of patience. The people they haven't killed in their experiments have run off because they know. And that's kind of interesting that the survivors don't get to see the bodies because they claim that there's a disease that's spreading and they have to bury them immediately so that it doesn't spread further. So that's kind of an interesting little detail. Although let's give props to the villagers who actually pack their bags and get the heck out of Dodge. Yeah. You know, unlike the villagers in Europe who just stay there and moan and groan and torment us like, oh, God, another Frankenstein. Woe to the village of Frankenstein. You know, they, they never is like, pack up your bags and go. Go to the next village. Get away. No, we'll just stay here. We'll lock our doors at night. We'll, you know, it is kind of funny. And I loved how so melodramatic and so staged when her the first experiment we see fails and she says, somehow I will find the right man. He must be big and strong. Next thing you see is two shirtless men fighting in front of the saloon. Oh, there's your big, strong man. It takes a long time, though, before the two 
get connected. Yeah, this film is almost got two different storylines going. It takes a while before they finally merge. This one is much more of a Western at points than Billy the Kid versus Dracula. In fact, if you sat down and watched a chunk of this film randomly, you would think you're watching a Western because it's like, well, okay, well, really? Where's where's Frankenstein? Where's where's the daughter? Where's Frankenstein's daughter? Where's the monster? No, it's all Western stuff, which I think also adds a level of authenticity, but also hurts the film a little bit because you can go a pretty long stretch without realizing what is this? Is this a Western? Is this a horror film? If you're looking for a horror film, you might be a little disappointed because it takes a while for things to get going. And ultimately when they get going, then it kind of runs into the B-level stereotypical, we've got a monster on the slab and the monster gets up. At that point, it becomes kind of paint by numbers. The Western scenes actually are done fairly well. You've got some interesting actors in this, as we mentioned, Jim Davis. Also, the saloon owner was Nestor Paiva. He was Lucas from Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, a lot of credits. 318. I didn't realize he was as, in as many things as he was in when I started doing some research, but he was in William Castle films. We've talked about Let's Kill Uncle and The Spirit is Willing. He was in Tarantula. He was in The Mole People. He was in Mighty Joe Young. He was in The Mad Men of Mandoras, which also became known as They Saved Hitler's Brain. But everyone remembers him as Captain Lucas. I am Lucas. Creature from the Black Lagoon is awesome. And one of the best scenes in that is where the one guy is like trying to take things over and he just kind of whips out that knife and is like, you know, basically, whose ship is this? Mm. And I think that Narda Onx or Onyx, who plays Dr. Maria Frankenstein, who is really the granddaughter, not the daughter, but, you know, she did an okay performance. I thought she, yeah, I thought she was good. Yeah, I thought I thought she was good. Stephen Geray or or Geray, who played Dr. Rudolph Frankenstein, he did a good job. Um, I didn't know who his character was for a long time. I thought first he was just her assistant because they did I I missed if they said who he was. Then when she mentioned grandfather Frankenstein back in Vienna, I thought, oh, that's the son, and then that was her father. Yeah. Then they revealed that it's her brother. Odd. Yeah, it took a while to get that reveal. I think that should have been scripted a little bit better. You know, you've also got a big strapping barrel-chested man, Hank Tracy, who ends up being called Igor <laughs> at one point. Yeah. Why? Yeah, yeah that's a that's a head scratcher. Oh, and he's no longer Hank. He's he's Igor. Eh, really? Okay. I've got some interesting things. I guess now maybe a good time to talk about Cal Boulder. He's got a Kansas connection. He was born Earl Craver in Elkhart, Kansas. Hmm. Attended Wichita State University on a football scholarship. He served in the Marine Corps during the Korean War. He received the Purple Heart. Then he joined the uh, LAPD, became a police officer. And while he was giving a traffic citation in 1959, he was giving it to basically a talent scout. I like the way you look. And would you like to become an actor? And he ended up leaving the police force and becoming an actor. He didn't do a lot. He was basically at 20 credits, retired in 1968. He was in Star Trek. So we have another Star Trek connection. He played the character of Kiel. Star Trek, season two, Friday's Child, one of my favorite episodes. But he was also 
the little tidbits on these movies are, are more exciting than the movies themselves. He was also an author. He published a novel called Last Reunion. Pretty interesting life, which I think probably more so overshadows the 20 things that he did. And his performance here as Hank, a.k.a. Igor, is probably the most well-known of his performances aside from Star Trek. He died in 2005 at the age of 73 of cancer. Hmm. He had an interesting life and an, an interesting little career. He had a good look about him. Not necessarily a great actor, but didn't need to be because he was kind of playing the sidekick. Ultimately, what he did as the monster was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't horrible. Yeah. How about that makeup? His head looks like a mushroom with the star around it. What in the blue hell was up with the rainbow? Oh, those were so cool. I want one of those. A rainbow World War II era army hat. Here's a little detail. Yeah, they're goofy looking and they're hooked up to wires and you expect all that. But I don't know if you noticed Maria's had like an antenna. And when the things were going, there was actually like electricity coming out of one of those antennas. Well, we'll talk about this. The lab equipment. Actually, the lab looked really good. Why? because they were actually using the original Universal Frankenstein lab equipment owned by Ken Strickfaden at the time. I think this was the first time that it appeared in color. This was the same equipment that Mel Brooks used in Young Frankenstein to make that movie uh, look so authentic. This led me down a rabbit hole because I thought, well, yeah, the, the equipment actually looked really good. And once I found out why, made sense. And I wondered, where is that equipment today? Clearly, Ken Strickfaden is probably not alive. He died in 1984. A friend of his named Ed, and I think it's pronounced Angel, he acquired the equipment. And at one point, he decided to put it up for sale in the early 1990s. There's a YouTube clip on Entertainment Tonight. Leonard Moulton is giving a story about it. It was going to go up for auction. And Leonard Moulton, I, I agree with him, thought that it should go into a museum because this is a piece of Hollywood history, and he was afraid that it was going to get sold into a private collector and never be seen. And this is where the story kind of diverges, and I don't know if they intersect, if there's more truth to one or the other. One source indicates that the equipment was sold to a museum in 1966 called Studios at Las Colinas in Irving, Texas, and it became part of their studio tour. And there are people talk about it online about seeing the Frankenstein lab and the studio tour. However, there's another individual, a collector named Doug Norwine. He claims to have purchased it. So I don't know if the equipment ended up getting split up, if he purchased it and then sold it, or if he bought it from the studio Las Colinas. That I don't know. The interesting thing is the studios at Las Colinas in Irving, Texas, they got sold to another company. Now they got renamed Mercury Studios, which is now owned by mega conservative radio and TV personality Glenn Beck. Oof. There is no reference on their website to say they've got the Frankenstein equipment. It's undefined where the equipment ended up. For the movie, I think it added authenticity and made the lab scenes look really good, except for the rainbow colored. 
<laughs> army helmets. I don't know why. Well, we'll just agree to disagree on that one. I just, I, to me, it just, it just stood out as a thorn. Yeah. Like, why are they? Well, and I also didn't know that Dr. Frankenstein created artificial brains that actually, when you pour a powder on them, they start pulsating. But that's an interesting twist as well. It is. You mentioned that Carl Hittleman, like there's some discrepancy of, of him writing Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Same discrepancy on this one or not? I didn't find anything. Because now that I think about it and knowing that, I think there is a bit of a difference in the script. We mentioned the similarities, but this one is more intricate. I mean, it it's more, to me, a little more clever. It takes a long time until they circle back together, but it's for a very good reason. Hank gets shot. You know, everyone's left town, so there's who's going to take care of him? Well, there's a doctor up on the hill, you know, that's got the old mission. So that was kind of good. <laughs> I talk about this like it's a masterpiece, but the relationship between the characters, it's a, a love quadrangle. I've been waiting for you to say the girl's name. Estelita? No, the, the main young girl. Say her name so I can correct you. The character's name or the actor's The name? character. The character is... <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> I, it's credited as Juanita Lopez. No, no, it's Juanita. <laughs> Juanita is in love with Jesse because he saved her from the Native Americans. Then Hank also likes Juanita and in various combinations, they say that they will stay and wait for each other or they'll go off with them. And then Maria claims to also be in love with Jesse. And there is a very funny scene where Jesse and Juanita are talking about their relationship. And she's a little manipulative creature because she asks him, don't you want me to go with you? And they kiss and he says, that's my answer. And then she says, oh, well, I can't go. I just wanted to know if you wanted me to go. <laughs> and he says, ain't that just like a woman? <laughs> and then she says that she'll wait for him anyway. <laughs> I love that scene. I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still stuck on Juanita. You got me on that. Well, you know, I keep saying that because that's how Hank slash Igor yeah, you know, yes. pronounces her name. So. I know that's how you, yeah. Yes. <laughs> also, another good plot point is that Maria sends Jesse to the pharmacist with supposedly a, a prescription, but inside it's really a note alerting the pharmacy that this is the notorious outlaw, Jesse James. I got a lot more out of this and it's... Well, you know... This is one of those cases where as I'm sitting here talking to you, I, I'm recognizing some of the, the high points that this film has. It's still not a great movie. No. It does have some elements to, to it that I think help elevate it. I still think that I enjoyed Billy the Kid versus Dracula, tomato, tomato. It's the little things that help elevate this film. Overall, I think, though, that, that John Lupton's performance as Jesse James, this is something that it hurts the film for me. And I, I, I can't get past that. Yeah. Sure. And, I mean, he was an accomplished actor. I look at it. He had 157 credits, did lots of film and TV, the invaders, the time tunnel, Alfred Hitchcock. He did 400 episodes of days of our lives playing Tom Horton. 
Uh, he died at a young age, died at the age of uh, 65 of heart disease in 1993. Estelita, as Juanita, this was her 30th film, was also her last film, unfortunately. Mm. She died before the movie opened. She died on March 12th at the age of 37 of influenza. We talked about Jim Davis, but I got to mention some of the other things. He was also in Satan's Triangle, Sixth Sense, Night Gallery, Thriller. He was in Monster from Green Hell. And a movie that every time I mention Dracula versus... See, there we go. There's the twin. (laughs) Stephen Garay or Jaray as Dr. Rudolph Frankenstein. Outer Limits, Time Tunnel, Tales of Tomorrow. He was also in The Evil of Frankenstein. So he was in a Hammer film. I want to talk just a second about Narda Onyx, though, who played Dr. Maria Frankenstein. So she didn't do a lot of stuff as far as an actor goes. She only had 31 credits. She had lots of TV work. This was actually her last film. But she was born in Estonia. She had a film career there. And then World War II broke out. Her and her family escaped capture from the Germans by posing as German before they eventually fled in the middle of the night to the Swedish Red Cross seeking protection. She, too, was an accomplished author. She wrote a biography of Johnny Weissmuller in 1964 called Water, World, and Weissmuller. Johnny Weissmuller played Tarzan in somewhere along the lines of like 15 films from the early 30s until the uh, late 40s before he uh, finally aged out of the role and transitioned into doing Jungle Gym films. I was amazed that she wrote a biography. I was more so amazed that you can actually find copies of it out there. They actually go for like $200. There are copies of this book out there signed by her. There's also copies of this book signed by him. I'd love to get my hands on one of these. $200 is out of my price range, but I'd love to get a hold of a copy of this. She also died at a young age, the age of 59 in 1991. And I don't know what she died of. I wish I liked this movie more. That said, I would like to revisit this film and maybe at a time when I'm not comparing it to Billy the Kid versus Dracula, and I might end up liking it more. I'd like to see a good print of this, but I'm not sure that one has surfaced yet. It's on Plex. It's on Tubi. You can rent it on Amazon. It's been released on a variety of DVD sources. This one appears to be public domain where Billy the Kid is not, which doesn't make any sense to me. I could be wrong and maybe... Billy the Kid is more popular, but they don't seem to like have reached the same status these days. You think they would go together with everything, but they don't. Like, as far as I know, Frankenstein's daughter has never had a Blu-ray release. Billy the Kid has. Well, the same materials must be available, I would think. I know. So I don't understand what the difference is, how they got separated. Yeah, to me, it's a no-brainer. This should be on a Blu-ray double feature. Oddly, on Tubi, the version of this movie was actually pretty good. Much, much better than Billy the Kid. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that's another reason that I liked it a little better. As it is now, I didn't hate it, didn't love it, kind of fell somewhere in the middle, maybe just a notch below Billy the Kid. And I'd put this one a full notch over Billy the Kid, but that's fine. We can have differing opinions. And then not even an opinion, it's just, enjoyment. And I think, you know, where we look at this, it's like, no matter what, which one is top or which one's bottom, neither one are at the top. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're, not, they're not at the high end of our list, but they're not at the bottom. So we've both seen worse. We've both seen better. 
I think everyone should check him out. Most of our listeners will find something to enjoy in these films. Yeah, I inexplicably enjoyed them both. And going in with uh, their reputations, I really didn't expect to. So I'm very pleased. I enjoyed this trip to the drive-in. But you know what? It doesn't look like very many other people did. I think they left during this movie. Usually we have to wait and do our new business while the other cars clear out. But there is nobody here. We can do that on our way home. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. We are back on the road, headed home. don't have a lot of new business, but... There are a couple of interesting things coming out on home video that I want to point out. One is that On the Beach from 1959 is coming out on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber on July 5th. At one point, this was a hard movie to find because I wanted to watch it for some particular reason and I couldn't find it. Also, since it is Pride Month, I want to mention a movie, not horror at all, but it is from the director of Vampire from 1932. And this is a movie from eight years earlier called Michael or Chained, the story of the third sex. This is one of the very earliest movies about a gay male relationship. The little tagline is triangle story, painter, his young male model, and an unscrupulous princess. So very kind of eager to see that. I mean, 1924, a movie dealing with those themes from the director of Vampire could be interesting. This movie, sci-fi, not horror, never heard of it, but it is one of those that the synopsis makes me very intrigued. It's called Star Pilot from 1966, also known as 2 Plus 5 Mission Hydra. This is a kitschy sci-fi extravaganza recently restored in, of course, 4K. Aliens from the constellation Hydra crash land on the island of Sardinia. A prominent scientist, his daughter, several young technicians, and a pair of oriental spies are taken hostage by the beings so they can use them to repair their spaceship's broken engine. With that done, they take off towards their home planet, taking the Earthlings with them. However, the humans attempt to mutiny against their captors, inadvertently sending their tiny spaceship hurtling into the infinite beyond. That is really about it, except for the major major announcement of a film we've done in the past in one of our highlight trademark episodes, Unman, Wittering, and Zigo from 1971. Remember that episode, Richard, the back to school episode? I do. Not one of our best episodes. Sometimes, as I've said, best laid plans of mice and men. That's a movie that I'm fond of. Yeah, I like to have it. I am glad to see that that movie is finally getting released because it has been a harder film to find. Never been given an official home media release. Plus, it's an Arrow video release, so it's likely to be packed with features. And that generally also means a higher price tag. However, Arrow video is having a 20% off sale right now. So you can even get that even though it has not been released. That's all I have for new business. Do you have anything to add? Anything you've seen? Coming I out, have seen or... something that there's not a release date on it yet, but this is something that 
This company has been on my radar and I've never heard of this film. The company is SRS Cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the company that put out the Blu-ray of the lost kaiju film Space Monster Wang Magui. <laughs> It's a 1967 South Korean kaiju film, and it was the second giant monster film to be made in South Korea. And it was the first full-length feature one. They have either uncovered or discovered or whatever a kaiju film from 1962 called The Whale God. It's about a basically a giant killer whale. This is from Bloody Disgusting. They call it the first official North American release for The Whale God, which has also been marketed internationally under the title Killer Whale. It was originally released in 1962, Dai A Studios, the counterpart to to Toho. Mm -hmm. It's got life-size practical effects. It's in black and white, directed by Takuzo Tanaka. And it's about a quiet fishing village of Wadara, In southern Japan, it's in turmoil. The whalers have always concentrated their efforts to try and catch a killer whale, which is easily twice as large as an ordinary leviathan and passes by in the offing at the same time every year. It has to do with the grandfather, and they were victims of the whale, and so now villages in pursuit of this big, giant whale. And it's coming on DVD and Blu-ray and digital at some point later this year. The trailer is out. I love when these films that you've never heard of, or maybe you saw a reference of and have never surfaced on the bootleg market, all of a sudden have now popping up out of nowhere and being made available. I don't know when the Whale God's going to be released, but at some point later this year, and it's got me, giant killer whale, kaiju film, 1962. Yep, I'm there. I love SRS Cinema's tagline, I guess, awesome underground movies you need. They've got a really bizarre mix of films that you're not going to find anywhere else, and you've probably never heard anywhere else. I want to mention a couple of other podcasts that I've listened to and Discover the Horror. Number 42 did an episode on classic Mexican Gothic, and they didn't talk about all the movies in that box set, too, I guess. I also listened to Hammerama number 157. Well, diecast movie podcast 157, Hammerama, I'm not sure what. Twins of Evil is what Alistair and Steve discussed with Judy Matheson, who was in Twins of Evil. And that was a wonderful episode, as was Steve's interview with Judy Matheson on Diecast Movie Podcast. And I can't recommend those enough. What a delightful lady she seems to be. Very with it. I don't know how old she is, but seemed very youthful. She's queen of social media. Very interesting story how she even hooked up with those two to be on. So I I recommend looking those up. Another friend of ours, Bill Mize, is making another appearance on the B-Movie cast, number 513. Not a horror film. They're talking about the Assassination Bureau from 1969 with Oliver Reed and Diana Rigg. And then finally, our friends Greg and Genius in Kansas City, your stomping grounds, Richard, Nightmare Junkhead number 396, they are in the midst of Kaijun, and they talked about War of the Gargantuas. I love those guys, and their show is so, so good. And, and War of the Gargantuas, I just saw that about a month and a half ago, maybe. So it's very fresh in my mind. I love that movie. I love those guys, too. Wouldn't it be nice to have them on the show? Yeah, we've been on their show multiple times. 
You know, we usually run into somebody, a friend at the concession stand between movies, and we didn't this time. Before we talk about next month, is there anything you're involved in that you want to plug? It's a quiet time over at the blog. You know, the last two months have been very, very busy doing a lot of other William Castle and Mr. Big films. Kind of taking the summer off from that, but I will be watching some films to tie into our summer at the drive-in themes as much as possible. June, Curse of the Undead, it's going to come up at some point in the month of June, but that's about the only film I'm going to do. But I do have some ideas for the rest of the summer. So June will start off kind of quiet, but I do have some ideas that'll tie into our themes for July and August. What about you? What's going on in your neck of the woods? It's Pride Month. I'm doing my second annual Monday review, Satan's Children, Fear No Evil from 81, Sleepaway Camp. I finally can see the end of the 70s TV movies. I'm going to conclude that series. Well, I say I'm going to conclude it, but with, and I've gone into the 80s a little bit, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which... I've never seen, and I hear it's very well regarded, and I thought, well, that would be a good good way to go out on top. However, thanks to you, and I do appreciate it, you helped me find a movie on a site that I can't even remember now, but I discovered several TV movies that I was unable to find my first time through, so I'm going to make a circle back, pick up a few that I missed along the way, and then that series is going to conclude, and then I have something very excited After that, I'm not ready to say quite yet, but I've been wanting to do it for the longest time, and I finally figured out my angle for it. Probably will be end of summer, first of the fall for that. I've got deadlines for some articles for Scary Monsters and the next We Belong Dead book. Shout out for the Codex Omniversa. Yeah, I poo-pooed you mentioning that before, but I'm getting into the groove of that. It's still not what I want it to be, but... It's going to be something. I have plans for that when I reach a certain point as well that I think it's really going to be kind of fun and different. I enjoy those. It's, man, that's some deep dive stuff to the behind the scenes. But I love how, as you're telling these stories, it ties in not just to more recent stuff, but also to some of the old comics. I mean, you've been doing some... 1960s Green Lantern connections. And I, I love that. That's that's yeah. kind of cool. Well, that's my intention. I'm trying to put together their mixed up history into a timeline. I'm not claiming it's the definitive, but it's like my timeline. It's how I make sense of it. What are we doing next time? We know we're going back to the drive-in. We are going back to the drive-in. We are going to be traveling back to the year 1973. And we're going to be going to the Pontiac Drive-In Theater in Pontiac, Michigan for a great double feature, Legend of Hell House, which was the new film in 1973, and the uh, second feature, Rosemary's Baby. If you want to play along at home before, if you don't have your time machine ready to travel with us back to 1973, Legend of Hell House. You can rent it on Amazon. It's available on Blu-ray from Shout Factory for $15, or you can do what I did. I actually found a really good copy of this on archive.org. Somebody uploaded it with a ton of other clips to kind of make an evening's worth of entertainment. And I'm talking a ton of clips. They threw in commercials of Vincent Price selling vitamins and Halloween honeycombs, cereal commercials, and 
a clip for the Haunted Mansion ride from the early 1970s, beginning to end. It looks really, really cool. Also, some Sammy Terry openings and closings, if you know who Sammy Terry is, the horror host. When you get to The Legend of Hell House, it looks amazing uh, for something that's absolutely free. So seek that out. If you want to watch Rosemary's Baby, it's streaming on a service called Hoopla. I'm not familiar with Hoopla. I refuse to be familiar with Hoopla. (laughs) I can't do it, folks. What do you have against Hoopla? I don't know. It's just another app, and I'm just afraid of what rabbit hole that'll take me down. Uh, You can rent it on Amazon. You can also get the Blu-ray from Paramount for less than $15. Rosemary's Baby is a William Castle-produced film, and he makes an appearance Great double feature at the Pontiac Drive-In Theater in Pontiac, Michigan, 1973. You know, as we're recording this, it's pre-Monster Bash. And plan is, I think, to try to get this episode out before Monster Bash, maybe. If all goes well, if you're listening to this and it's pre-Monster Bash, we'll be at Monster Bash. (laughs) We will be arriving late on Thursday. We'll be there Friday and Saturday and at least part of Sunday. If you recognize the voice or know what we look like, please introduce yourselves. If you can't be there, I'm sure we'll be talking about it. And our next episode, we'll be talking about our experience at the Monster Bash. Yes. And I just want to echo what Richard said. If you see us, please come up and say hello. Tell us who you are. We will have some little freebies we'll be giving away. So if you don't care to see us, at least come and get the little freebie. I mentioned it at the beginning, and I will now say that the song we're going out with, I've got it queued up here, not on the radio. This is on my CD player in the car. Just Like Jesse James by Cher from the 1989 album Heart of Stone, available on Apple Music. And this is if someone doesn't recognize this and pull us down because we're playing copyrighted material. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for watching our video companion, for calling and leaving feedback. We will see you next month at the drive-in. Take care, everyone. You're strolling into town like you're slinging a gun. Just a small town dude with a big city attitude. Some trouble tonight Well, all right You think you're so bad Drive the women for a while you Shoot them all down With the flash of your pretty smile Honey, but you met your man tonight Well, that's right You think you'll knock me on my feet Till I'm flat on the floor Jesse James